This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Japan now, where the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has pledged to restart more nuclear power plants to provide energy as Japan struggles with its hottest summer on record. But 11 years on from the Fukushima disaster, nuclear plants remain deeply unpopular amongst the Japanese public. Our Tokyo correspondent Rupert Wingfield Hayes has gained rare access to Fukushima's nuclear plant and sent this report. Europe is sweltering under one of its earliest and hottest heat waves on record. Scientists say climate change is driving unseasonably high temperatures. Tonight, we take a look at how some countries are trying to adapt, coming to terms with global warming that is here to stay. Blazing fires and scorching droughts. In the face of rising temperatures, European nations are looking for ways to adapt to this new normal. The June heatwave drove temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius in multiple regions, as high as 14 degrees above the monthly average. Nestled in the arid heart of the country, the capital Madrid sweltered in the unseasonably brutal heat. The weather is separating into two extremes. Floods for some, Australia, and extreme heat for others, even England. Why now? Have we pushed past a tipping point, one that can be seen only in the rearview mirror after the fact? We have a new paper on the underestimation of methane and increasing methane levels. Could that be pushing the immediate breakdown of the climate? Or is that combining with a big burst of carbon that came out this year? Or is it all cumulative, cutting down forests and all the impacts of consuming a planet by one species? Scientists did see this coming, but they did not know when. As guests already warned Radio EcoShock listeners, we just left the old climate behind. Many of you in the Northern Hemisphere are struggling with extreme heat. But there is another harsh outbreak, pushed by the overloaded atmosphere, extreme rainfall. In the spring and early summer of 2022, that is the big story in southern China, the Pacific Northwest, and certainly Australia. Records are broken yet again, with up to three feet, a meter of rain, crashing down in 24 hours. In this program, we investigate extreme rainfall events with two experts, Appearing on Radio EcoShock last year, Dr. Alexander Robinson in Madrid and Dr. Jesse Norris in Los Angeles. Heavy rains and floods kill more people every year than fires and inflict more property damage. We need to pay attention. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. A freak summer heat wave in the Pacific Northwest killed hundreds in the summer of 2021. In November, three atmospheric rivers brought flooding and landslides, cutting Vancouver off from the rest of Canada. Thousands were forced from their homes. Gasoline was rationed. Welcome to the future. According to Breaking Science, extreme weather is rapidly becoming the new normal. The paper title tells all, Increasing Heat and Rainfall Extremes, now far outside the historical climate. We reached the lead author, Dr. Alexander Robinson. He is an assistant professor at Complutense University of Madrid and guest scientist at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. 
from Madrid. Alex Robinson, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, thanks for having me. You are the man of the hour. What is your impression of the events in British Columbia relative to the paper you just published this October in Nature's NPJ Journal? Yes, I think the events in in British Columbia are certainly scary to see playing out, and especially after such recent events happening again last summer. And and, in different magnitudes, you have droughts, you have heat waves, and you have fires as well. So it seems like you have the trifecta there. We are experiencing, I think, in advance of some, but not necessarily all. Uh, There have been many places struck by extreme climate this year. Now, just on the first day in December here, it was 22.5 degrees C, or 72 Fahrenheit, a few miles from my studio. And it was the hottest December day ever recorded in our province and possibly in Canada. The same December day, it was over 70 degrees Fahrenheit in Boulder, Colorado. That is crazy, summer-like heat in the winter. Tell us about your explorations into extreme heat around the world in 2020. What we tried to look at was the more global picture of how climate change is evolving over time. And so to do that, we first looked at, well, a gritty global data set of monthly temperature anomalies so that we could get an idea of what was happening. And, and we tried to do this really on a statistical level. So we looked at a period before there was much global warming, so before the 1980s. And we took that as kind of a reference climate period. And what we found is that when you look at this on a global scale, essentially the variability, the year-to-year change in, in any given month's temperature at any given place roughly follows a, a normal distribution. So essentially you have a mean temperature at a place, the average expected climate you could expect for July or December. And then any given year, you might have some variability around that. And that variability followed a, a bell curve. You, know, you would typically have some variation around that mean and a Every once in a while, you'll have more extreme variation. But that extreme variation is much less likely to happen. Then what we can do, starting from that reference point, is look at what happens when you impose a trend on top of that, which is what's happening uh, with climate change. And so we can look at the observations that we have over the last 60 years, and we can see, uh, we can basically track how much those extreme events have increased in frequency compared to that reference period. And so we see that really extreme events, so what we call four sigma events, which are four standard deviations away from the average climate, those used to be non-existent in the reference period. About 0.003% of the time you might possibly have one of these events happening. And now globally those are happening about 3% of the time. So that's about a thousand-fold increase in these really extreme forcing events. Those have only emerged in the last decade, according to our analysis. So it's not everywhere is experiencing that. That's mainly in the tropics where you're getting such dramatic changes in the extremes. But I think it's a bit the canary in the coal mine. It's starting to show what, what we can expect as levels of warming continue to rise. Over the decades, there have been swings of temperatures with a couple of years of high heat in the 1930s, for example. What makes you think the recent heat waves from Siberia to Australia are not natural? I think there are now several lines of evidence that support uh, the fact that this is uh, anthropogenic. In nature, of course, there's a natural variability component to that. But overall, uh, we can see that the dominant factor, particularly in in, uh, long heat waves, is, is becoming anthropogenic change. 
So um, not only studies like mine clearly show that, but really statistically outside of the norm. So we looked at actually two different measures, not just the one I just explained, but also uh, record-breaking temperature anomalies. And those in a climate that's not warming also follow a particular pattern. Basically, you uh, it's harder and harder to get a record if your climate is not changing, right? Because the temperature would just have to go higher and higher, and that statistically wouldn't really make sense if the climate's not changing. But if you impose a warming trend on top of that, then it starts to become easier to get those records because you just slowly, with the mean, you start increasing your temperature, eventually you'll hit one of those records. So we see that statistically that's reflected in the observations and it's consistent with a warming climate. And then there are other studies. So there's uh, actually an excellent international group called the World Weather Attribution Organization. And they're also doing really neat work trying to produce kind of rapid attribution studies after the fact. Um, and they've clearly shown that, that most recent events would have been almost impossible without uh, a climate change component. So those and modeling, I mean, there, there are several lines of evidence now. The, the question is not really, is it being affected by global warming, but rather how much? Essentially, this paper suggests older people who grew up in the 1950s or 60s saw the last stable climate. Have we left what you call the stationary climate behind now? I think so. I think that that's uh, absolutely the case. And I think we actually left it behind a long time ago. It's simply that we're just now starting to discern the signal from the noise, right? So we had to get enough warming. I mean, particularly the further north you go, or the higher latitudes, rather, the more variability you can expect in a given year, right? So uh, near the equator, the variability is much lower. It's about half a degree for a monthly, a month, you know, a July temperature there is going to be within a half a degree of, of what it always is. Whereas in Canada, maybe that variability is much closer to, to two or three degrees. So, and, and even seasonally, it's changing a lot. So that noise is, is a lot harder to overcome and you need to have a stronger global warming signal before that signal starts to emerge. And I think what we're seeing is now a really robust emergence of the signal from the noise. So when it comes to the great western heat dome that smothered the Pacific Northwest from Portland to our area of Canada, we should mention a new study just out in November about this event from the Netherlands. S.Y. Philippe led the paper rapid attribution analysis of the extraordinary heat wave on the Pacific coast of the U.S. and Canada, June 2021. Alex, what did they find? Uh, yeah, they found very clearly that the heat wave really couldn't have occurred uh, otherwise without global warming. So I wasn't in, involved in that study, but definitely they... Basically, many of these people are, are contributors to this weather attribution, uh, World Weather Attribution Organization. And they, again, they looked at, at data from uh, weather observations uh, in the region. Um, and they also looked at, at modeling to kind of look at how this could play a role. And they clearly found that these temperatures were so extreme and so high that it really couldn't have happened with, without human-caused climate change. And for them, as I recall, they, have, they estimated the event was about a one-in-a-thousand-year event in today's climate. So according to the statistics, it, it, it was 
extremely unexpected for such an event to occur. And I think the public misunderstands those kind of statements because to say it's one in a thousand years, I think some people tend to think, well, we won't see another one for another thousand years, but that isn't how it works at all, is it? No, no, you're right. I mean, statistically speaking, you have to take it into account that this is just talking about probabilities and and how frequently we could expect it. But it could be just like rolling the dice. You can get two sixes in a row. You can get two uh, really warm years in a row. The point is that it it would be unlikely to see them again and again and again, and we would have to maybe revise our statistical model. On the other hand, it's kind of indicative of, of a quote from Jim Henson a while ago, you know, that the dice are starting to become loaded. And so that's where what we're seeing is what used to be maybe one in a thousand year events are becoming maybe one in a hundred year events or or even shorter. So, you know, those one in a thousand year events refer to a stationary climate. And then I think that's the case, that if you didn't have any global warming, you might have this freak event, you might have this huge warming but then it would be unlikely to see it again for a long time. But now with the background changing, it's anybody's guess, and especially when you introduce a nonlinear component like uh, jet stream oscillation. In a recent interview, Johannes Lohmann from the Niels Bohr Institute explained that with climate, the rate of change can be as important as the amount of change. Your paper documents changes in both heat and rainfall, developing not over centuries, as one might expect, but increasing rapidly with every decade, is the speed of increase in these extreme weather events serious, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think that from the atmospheric dynamics point of view, it's hard to say what effect the rate of increase is having. But certainly, one could expect that the oceans should, over longer times, absorb heat that we're pumping into the atmosphere and and try to restore that balance. And so, If we're overwhelming that mechanism, then certainly we're going to have more heat in the atmosphere than we otherwise would. More to the point for the rate of change, I think, is important for for the question of adaptation. And so not just for humans, but rather for ecosystems, for animals and and for plants and these types of migratory effects that can can result. When, When a region becomes unlivable for a certain species, they're going to migrate and try to find somewhere else. But if that change is happening uh, extremely fast, it may not be possible for them to adapt, and then you may instead just have, have an ecosystem collapse. Let's move from extreme heat to extreme rain. As you know, my hometown of Vancouver is a wet coastal city. We're very used to rain. But three atmospheric rivers in almost a week just about drowned the whole region. A, a historic lake refilled. Thousands were evacuated. Countless homes and lives were ruined. Talk to us about your research into extreme rainfall events. Sure, yeah. We um, updated an analysis um, as well. In the same paper, we were looking at, at rainfall extremes as well. And there, there's clearly an increase, especially on the global scale, that we can see associated with uh, rainfall. So we looked at daily rainfall uh, observations, and we found that uh, now talking about record rainfall, so really just the most extreme rainfall you might have of any given day, you can expect that one in four of those records will be due to climate change. But of course, the signal is, is certainly less clear-cut than it is for 
for temperatures. There's a really one-to-one correlation with pumping CO2 in the atmosphere and increasing the temperature. Precipitation is much more nonlinear, and so it's much more related to atmospheric dynamics as well. Nonetheless, with increasing temperatures, you can expect that the atmosphere has a higher capacity for carrying water and distributing that elsewhere. And so that's, I think, what can be reflected partly that atmospheric rivers, not necessarily that the atmospheric rivers exist, but certainly uh, that they might be laden with more water, so have, have more destructive p- potential. In my opinion, a lot of these extreme rainfall events escape people's notice if they don't happen in North America or Europe or Australia or one of the world's media centers. Only a few people watching BBC or Al Jazeera heard about the first big flood of 2020 in Jakarta, Indonesia, that you studied. Are these extreme rainfall events happening more in the tropics, like African countries or Brazil, uh, than in the high media countries? That's right. I think I think they're certainly more typical in the in the tropical regions where you have a lot more uh, water in the atmosphere as well. But as you're seeing, they're certainly possible for them to happen uh, everywhere. So you you just need the atmospheric dynamics combined with a a source to distribute that precipitation uh, through the atmospheric river. So I think it will be really interesting to see. It's certainly not my area of expertise to look at, at this from the atmospheric point of view, but uh, I know that a lot of people are are looking into atmospheric rivers because it's certainly seems to be that there's an increase in activity that we need to understand. This is Radio Ecoshock from Madrid and the Potsdam Institute. Our guest is Dr. Alexander Robinson. He and his team found extreme heat and rainfall events are coming faster and covering more of the Earth as we heat the planet. Before we continue with new science of extreme heat and rain, I want to take a brief excursion into your research into the Greenland ice sheet melt In March 2021, I talked with Dr. Andrew Christ from the University of Vermont. He told us Greenland was ice-free, more or less, within the last million years. Alex, you published something about that in 2017. What did you find? Yeah, we. uh, it's really a different tack because they were looking at at paleoclimatic changes, and that's really what's interesting for the Greenland ice sheet because it's been around for a really long time. But certainly there's evidence from ice cores that have been taken from Greenland and from evidence from from other sediment cores that hint at the possibility that Greenland maybe lost a significant portion of ice in the last million years, particularly during a, a warm interglacial period called Miss 11, so that was about 400,000 years ago. Uh, and it was a warm period that lasted much longer than the current warm period, the Holocene that we live in today, maybe about twice as long with temperatures similar or warmer than today. And so what we looked at in that study is we tried to simulate that with an ice sheet model coupled to a regional climate model. And we don't know exactly what the climate was like then, but we have a, a fairly good idea, and we use that to inform our model of, of how it could be driven, basically by temperature anomalies from around the Greenland area, and then we use that to force the ice sheet model and see what happened over this long, warm period, uh, and what we found, indeed, was that when you have warming above today's levels for a very long time, uh, at least in those conditions in Miss 11, it, it almost deglaciated Greenland completely, although not entirely. There's still some mountain regions where you had some glaciers, but 
overall it was essentially lost with about six meters of contribution to sea level during that time. And way back in 2011, you and scientist Andre Ganapolsky from PIC stated, paleoclimate, the past is not the future when it comes to Greenland. What did you mean? Well, yeah, it's very easy to imagine that we had a warm period a long time ago, 100,000 years ago or 400,000 years ago, and Greenland melted. Therefore, if we have a warm period in the future, Greenland will melt. That's the logical conclusion. And roughly, that's a true statement. But there were different factors to take into consideration in, in paleoclimate. For one, the most, uh, the predominant factor is the change in the orbital configuration of the Earth. So on those timescales, actually, the orbit of the Earth is changing, how it's angled towards the sun, how wide its ellipses around the sun, this all changes in a periodic manner. And so you can have a different configuration that means that your seasons are slightly different or the amount of solar radiation arriving at the Earth's surface is different than it was today. And so those factors can have a large impact on atmospheric dynamics and as well what's happening with the ice sheet. So what I tend to think of these paleoclimatic periods are extremely important for informing us about the mechanisms that were present that, uh, and they allow us to constrain our models as well and make sure that we're working with a physical mechanism that makes sense in Earth's history. And then we can use that calibration to then project into the future with more confidence. But the projection itself needs to come from modeling of the future, not directly looking at the past. Getting back to extreme heat in your latest paper, Will deadly heat expand evenly over the world, affecting all countries? Uh, no, I think that would be a rather unlikely way for it to happen. We're already seeing that certain regions are disproportionately affected, particularly now the emerging extreme heat is coming from the tropics and equatorial regions. And these, of course, are regions that are typically the least equipped to deal with these changes. And as the global warming signal increases, this will shift to higher latitudes and will certainly suffer under those changes. But again, I think that you have to look at countries' capacities to deal with those uh, impacts. So both combined, you will have uh, uneven changes around the world and you'll have uneven impacts. Do you think heating in the tropics is another case of climate injustice, where people who emitted the fewest greenhouse gases get the worst impacts of global warming? I definitely think it's a strong argument in that direction. I think that needs to be part of the discussion moving forward is how to compensate and adjust for those impacts because certainly we know that uh, we can attribute global warming today to our CO2 emissions and, and we know predominantly where those historical emissions have come from and they have not been coming from the tropics. I, I think this whole heat wave in the tropics thing has been greatly undercovered People in northern climates tend to think, well, it's always hot down there. People are used to it. They're, they're ready for it. But in fact, these heat waves can be very deadly in the tropics, and I think they will or could drive mass migration away from those places. Do you have any ideas on those lines? Yeah, I think you're right. They've certainly been undercovered. And part of that may be to do with the fact, as I alluded to before, that the variability in these regions is generally lower. So we may be talking about a shift of only half a degree or one degree there. But when you're talking about a place 
that is already very warm and, and likely very humid as well. Then you get up to heat in the indices that are can be very dangerous for human health, in fact. And so it's going to be very problematic, I think, for these regions, and it should be something that we should be paying attention to. And again, this extreme heat is only going to be expanding to wider and wider regions. On extreme rainfall, I note the systems for water runoff, uh, flood protection, and sewage were all built to handle conditions in the previous century in the more stable 1900s. What does this research tell planners and citizens about the new future? Well, for one, that it's going to be constantly changing, assuming that we don't stop emitting CO2 sooner rather than later. So not only do we need to adjust our thinking for the potential for extreme rainfall or combined events as well, so droughts followed by rainfall, which exacerbate the whole problem, but that we need to be aware that that's going to be changing over time and and getting worse as well. So certainly we need to have a new mentality going into the next century than we've had uh, historical. We should not be paving and building cities uh, over rivers like we maybe used to do, uh, but we should actually incorporate these floodplains and and flood routes uh, into our planning. And and I think there's definitely been a shift in that direction. The problem is overcoming the built environment that we already have, and that's going to be a a transition that's going to need to happen in the next years. The results of your paper seemed a bit shocking and and new even to me, and I watched these things. Did scientists realize, say in the year 2000, did they know this rapid increase in extreme heat and rainfall events would happen so soon? Or is this a new realization in science and it hasn't reached the public and governments and corporations yet? I think that our results that come from observations essentially, are not outside of the thinking that, that was coming from, from modeling that was happening in, in 2000. I mean, model simulations from the first IPCC reports are, are largely consistent in their projections with what we have coming out today. But certainly it is important to see that playing out in observations. No, so I think, I think it's not wholly new. I think there really is evidence of this from modeling that we've had in the past, and now this is coming out in observations as well. But of course, what I think is new to science is the nonlinear component. So what you see, for example, in the in the heat wave in Canada, what is really shocking even to a scientist like me who's studying this is seeing 50 degrees Celsius up at latitude of Canada. That just seems very strange and very sudden. And that's a nonlinear component of the dynamics that that is under investigation today and is not fully clear related to jet stream meandering and having these heat dome blocking events. This was not necessarily predicted in the models in 2000 because we didn't have the resolution to really project these events. And and now the models are starting to get good enough that we can understand that and also reanalysis data as well. And so we're getting a, a better handle on the dynamics and what's really possible. 2021 was the summer from hell here with the heat, fires, and smoke, and now supplies are short, roads and railways are broken by the super rains. People are a bit angry, and and they're definitely stressed and worried. How do you and others at the Potsdam Institute handle personally the, the seriousness, maybe even, I would say, the horror, of what scientists do see for the future? It's a really good question. It's it's a it's a 
on a personal level, it's challenging because on the one hand, you look at these problems rather objectively as a scientist looking at the data and trying to understand phenomenon and, and analyze it and calculate certain things. But of course, then when you go into your life and you see that with great confidence, especially being the one or one of many who, who's making these analyses. What are you working on next, Alex? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm doing multiple things. I'm certainly still focused on, on researching the ice sheets, both uh, Greenland and Antarctica, their past and their future. But in terms of extreme weather, I have a real interest in understanding more the frequency of extreme weather, um, particularly from the point of view of energy generation, actually. So I've been collaborating with scientists to look into what does extreme weather mean for power plants and for the possibility of blackouts and things like that. So I'm working on developing analyses and, and tools so that we can inform better engineers that would be interested in this data for, for power plants. And in general, that, that I would like to continue following the lead of, of the extreme weather and understand more details about where it might be taking us and, and how we can better refine our understanding of whether it was due to climate change or whether it's, it's natural and when we can expect to see the difference. From one of the world's oldest universities, Universidad Complutense de Madrid, we have been speaking with Assistant Professor Alexander Robinson. Find links to his important new paper on extreme heat and rainfall in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The paper is open access, freely available to all. Alex Robinson, thank you for sharing your time with our listeners. Thank you for having me. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Listening to a new combination of replay interviews gathered together, what we know about the high number of extreme rainfall events breaking out around the planet. Behind the heat, heavy rains and floods are the other side of climate change. On Saturday, 21st of August, an impossible 17 inches of rain, 43 centimeters, fell on Waverly, Tennessee, a little town west of Nashville. More than 20 people were killed in a surprise rush of water. In Europe, mid-July, record-busting rains brought floods, killing at least 165 people in Germany and 31 in Belgium. Extreme precipitation events are popping up all over the world. Could it happen where you are? And is it climate change? At the University of California, Los Angeles, Dr. Jesse Norris specializes in these small-scale but large-impact weather events, educated in the UK at the University of Manchester. Norris is a postdoctoral researcher at UCLA and co-author of a timely new scientific piece answering many of our questions. From Southern California, Jesse Norris, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Good morning. Nice to be on. Why are these strange torrents of water popping up all over the world, surprising even scientists? 
So in the, the study that we've uh, recently published, we've looked at the intensification of precipitation extremes around the world. And so if you imagine the most in intense precipitation events that occur in any location, uh, our study is finding that, that on a global scale, so when you can con consider the whole globe collectively, they are intensifying. And that, so they have been intensifying in recent decades, which we have attributed to anthropogenic climate change. That means man-made climate change. And our projects continue doing so. And so on, our study does not really go into this, but on, a, on an essential level, it's because as the climate warms, it can hold more water vapor. And so when the really extreme storms happen, they have more water vapor available to precipitate out. And so we're typically seeing when the, those most extreme events happen, they have more uh, available moisture to precipitate. On a basic level, that's leading to the intensification. There are various other physics involved that can, that can change that relationship. Right. And it's not just happening in places reported by the Western press. I've seen these events pop up in Chad and uh, in in South America, in Australia. It's really kind of a, a strange phenomenon. Now, you specialize in something called mesoscale meteorology. What is that? And how does it compare with the big weather maps we see on TV? So mesoscale is a scale of, of weather that's typically on the scale of tens to hundreds of kilometers. So it's essentially the study of how precipitation systems affect, how regional precipitation can be affected by processes that are occurring on a relatively small scale. So this is in contrast to what we call the synoptic scale, which is, which is the scale of oceans and continents where large-scale weather systems evolve. But then when we look at the, the mesoscale, we there are much more complicated processes which are involved which can intensify precipitation locally depending on what's happening in that specific region. A few scientists on this show, and certainly the IPCC reports, tagged extreme precipitation events as a developing threat in a warming world, but the big models did not pick up such high intensity of localized events like those seen this year what are the problems between those big models and the kind of work we need? Uh, so there are a lot of processes occurring, uh, as I explained, on the mesoscale and, and even going smaller on what we call the convective scale. So the mesoscale is, is uh, looking at processes on the scale of tens to hundreds of kilometers, but then what we call the convective scale, which is just on the, on the scale of, of one kilometer or less, there are processes which are very complex and involve uh, very complex physics, which as much as models are advancing, there are always going to be processes that are occurring unexpectedly in the atmosphere, which can lead to intensification on very short timescales that might not have been seen by, by models. So, so all the time improvements are being made to, to make the, the forecasting models to give them more accurate precipitation forecasts, but there are still very complex processes occurring on very small scales where a large-scale storm can interact with the local geography to locally intensify precipitation and, and lead to precipitation amounts in very small areas which are extremely intense and have been leading to the devastation that you described. Is extreme rainfall or snowfall when the air is cold enough, are they limited to certain locales known for rain or can they happen almost anywhere in the world? Yes, yeah, so there are certain regions which is are certainly more prone to extreme precipitation events. So that's the combination of rainfall and snowfall. 
uh, generally we look to the tropics to be the the most at-risk areas, which is where there's the most warmth in the atmosphere by association can lead to the, the greatest rainfall or snowfall amounts. But also in other parts of the world, when the conditions are just right, so we've, we've seen, as you described, in uh, Western Europe, which is in what we call the mid-latitudes, um, and also here in, in Southern California, in the subtropics, whichever type of region it is, we can still see, although average precipitation might not increase, we can still see individual events that can really wreak havoc. And depending on the, the processes that cause precipitation in the local region, those, when the conditions are just right, due to greater warmth in the atmosphere associated with climate change, those can become all the more intense as, as the climate warms. Where I live in western Canada, we just went through a seven-week heat wave, including the hottest temperatures ever recorded in this country, and the U.S. West was even hotter. And looking at the surrounding hills outside my home, I could see a haze of the last of the water being sucked out of the ground, heading into the sky. Does water from the drought-stricken West add extra juice to rainfall in other places? Uh, that's a pretty complicated question. I suppose it, it can. So when water vapor is evaporated from the surface somewhere, it can be transported somewhere else. And when there's all the more water vapor in the atmosphere, that can lead to all the more intense precipitation in uh, whichever region experiences the storms. So yes, in theory, that's there can be, in, as a general perspective, the more water vapor in the atmosphere, which it can be stored in the atmosphere or in the in the land surface, wherever that water vapor ends up when it precipitates out, that can cause all the more intense storms, all the more intense rainfall amounts. But I guess most of the water up there actually comes from evaporation off the oceans. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, but, but again, with with warmer surfaces that evaporation is going to be all the greater and, and and then because the atmosphere is warmer it's capable of storing all the more water vapor so whether it's in the ocean surface or the land surface the warmer temperatures are, are going to lead to greater evaporation and so greater amounts of precipitation Within weeks of the deadly July 13th floods in northern Europe, a group of scientists called World Weather Attribution released a report finding intense summer rains in Western Europe are more likely and will happen more often in the coming years due to climate change. How can they know that? Uh, so I'm not familiar with the specifics of that study, but I'm assuming that they have studied climate models that have, that have projected for that particular region that uh, as they go through time, although they can't attribute any individual event to climate change, they can see that the, the models very clearly project an increasing probability of events of that magnitude to occur as the climate warms and we move through the 21st century. Well, listeners, I'll put a link to that report in my show blog at ecoshock.org. If the skies can just open up and pour like we have never seen, and that's well beyond our drains and our local waterways to handle and probably beyond our insurance company's ability to handle, this makes a warming world sound like an even more unstable place to be in addition to the heating, which we've all talked about. Is that what you think is developing? What do you mean by more unstable? Well, you know, the, the concert in, in Central Park uh, on August 21st, we love New York 
City Homecoming concert was suddenly rained down, more rain in two hours than ever recorded in Central Park, and they have records going back a long way. It just seems like you can't count on much if you have uh, rains that are beyond what we've seen before. That's right, yeah. Also, although the, the projection in a lot of regions is that um, there will be more dry periods, when those big rain events do come, they're going to be all the more intense. So, for example, here in Southern California, we go months and months without precipitation, but then we'll just have a huge deluge just in the space of a couple of weeks. So that's a particularly extreme case, but it seems that that's the, the projections around the world are for that to be, as you, as you state, more unstable so that you can expect it both extreme dry periods, but also more extreme rain when it does come. Rain and weather's always been uneven and difficult to predict, especially for smaller regions. As your paper explains, there are so many variable factors from short-term forces to very long cycles. But before the new methods used by your team, it seems scientists were unable to clearly prove that extreme precipitation events during the last century have increased. Is that the case? So it's not completely accurate that other studies haven't been able to show intensification of precipitation. So generally, the um, previous studies have been restricted to specific regions. And so previous studies have shown that in specific regions that precipitation has been intensifying in, in recent decades. But because of the, the natural variability in the climate system, you can always get some regions where there might be you might see an intensification and then some regions where you might see a weakening. So the, the goal of this study was to bring all of the regions on Earth together and say collectively, are the regions where, where precipitation has been intensifying, are there enough of those to say that on a global scale that, that this is happening and it's, and it's more than what we would just expect from noise. To do that, we used the, the novel machine learning method i got to ask you about that. Artificial Neural Networks, or Anne, dare we mere mortals ask, what is that? What is machine learning, and, and how did you use it? So I was not the lead author on, on this study, so I was not in, um, intricately involved with the technical details here, but just on a, on a conceptual level, it's where we, in this case, we feed in uh, global maps of, of extreme precipitation. So we feed in global maps each year, and so we see the evolution of the global distribution of extreme precipitation over time. And then in, just in terms of the, the spatial structure, from a global perspective, the machine is able to interpret those maps and say, okay, the ones that you're feeding us from more recently, we can tell, I can tell the difference between those and the ones that you're feeding me from, say, the early 20th century that it can tell that the maps in more recent times are profoundly different because precipitation is intensifying in sufficiently many regions that it's beyond what could be expected from noise. I think that's amazing science, and I don't know how far artificial intelligence can take us, but nature's so complex, it looks like we're going to need something beyond our personal minds to, to crack it. Uh, yes, we're, we're becoming <laughs> extremely uh, reliant on in, in increasing computer power to, to solve the very complex uh, mathematical and physical problems that are, that are necessary to make reliable climate projections. And so, yes, our machine learning is becoming increasingly 
useful tool for, ve- for various applications of, of climate science. And it's able to process an amount of data which we are not able to do so at all and make inferences about what is happening to the climate system as we progress through the 21st century. And so this is one particular application, but there are all sorts of other applications that are being used to be able to make inferences about what climate change is doing to whether it's precipitation or temperature or winds or evaporation or whatever you like, which we would not be able to do without these sophisticated uh, artificial intelligence Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Jesse Norris, postdoctoral atmospheric researcher at UCLA. We're talking about new science that can tell us more about deadly extreme rainfall events in many parts of the world. Well, I'm getting in over my head here, and, and but we might as well take a shot at it. I read that your team found positive relevance for some parts of the world, including the East Asian monsoon and both North Pacific and North Atlantic storm tracks, but negative relevance for other parts of the world. What does that mean, and, and why is it important? Okay, so as, as I alluded earlier, when we're looking at the, the global patterns of these precipitation events, And so the challenge is that there are, in fact, some regions where, a small number of regions, where precipitation has becoming weaker. So what we're trying to do is consider all of those regions together and and say that collectively the globe is experiencing more extreme rainfall. And so in this context, where we refer to positive relevance, these are the regions such as the East Asian monsoon, as you mentioned, which is where the the greater signal is being received. And then negative relevance are typically in the arid regions of the world, the the Earth's deserts, where you're in fact seeing rainfall becoming less intense over time. And so the job of the neural network that's trying to, to solve this problem with artificial intelligence is to sort these regions with what we call positive relevance and negative relevance and establish that the regions with positive relevance are in fact greater than those with negative relevance. Well, you've just stimulated an an interesting idea in me. We talk about extreme rainfall events, but maybe there are weakened rainfall events. I mean, sometimes here now, instead of a rain, we just see big splattery drops that are about a foot apart. You can almost walk in between the raindrops. Maybe there is a, a new kind of rain developing in the drier areas. What do you think? Are you referring to in Canada there? Well, in, in the desert areas of the West, let's say. All uh, right, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're generally expecting a decrease in so what, what we refer to as drizzle. We generally expect a decrease of that, and so we expect longer dry spells with, absolute, with completely blue skies and no precipitation. But when the really extreme storms happen, they are all the more intense. So that is something that is, that is in fact, projected to, to decrease in uh, a, a warming climate. I, I suppose that can be almost considered as, as zero precipitation, the kind of uh, events that you're referring to. But that the um, occurrence of, of something like that is not something that uh, generally we would expect an increase of. And this new paper, led by Gavin D. Matakambura and the UCLA team, was published in the journal Nature on July 6, 2021, just a week before the freak floods in northern Europe. That was pretty good timing, don't you think? 
Yes, it was indeed. <laughs> uh, yes, there as, as well as there were, there were extreme monsoon rains you know, in India uh, and in China with uh, all sorts of devastating impacts. So, yeah, we would argue that uh, whenever we publish such a study, there are going to be examples around the world, whether it's in those regions that, that happens to experience those extreme events at that time or if, it, if the study had been published at another time, then perhaps California or Australia or wherever else we might have seen. <laughs> Although it's not something that is nice to hear about, that, that generally there are, whenever you might... Uh, want to talk about this, there are examples right outside your door that you can look to. No shortage of news stories about it, and I know that I'm going to be reporting on this for as long as we keep the show going. There's just going to be more shocking rainfall events. But the paper does note that the helpful results from machine learning do not include the possibility of rare events like uh, a big volcanic eruption, and they may not account properly for long-term variability like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. So if one of these years several volcanoes blow, could that throw off predictions about extreme rain and extreme drought? Yes. Yeah, so in the past, when we've seen major volcanic eruptions, that can actually result in a temporary global cooling. And so that has the tendency to have the opposite effect of what we're seeing in the, in the longer term. So that can interrupt the long-term trend that we're seeing. But generally, these are these kind of events, even even when they're volcanic eruptions of such intensity as, for example, uh, Pinatubo in uh, 1992, I believe, which which caused global cooling for a few years and interrupted, led to what is often referred to as the global warming hiatus. These cooling events are always just very short-lived and and ultimately are not changing the the long-term trend that we are, that we have been seeing in recent decades and can, can expect to continue seeing. Well, we know from the records that there was a super drought lasting hundreds of years in the American Southwest many hundreds of years ago, and that was not human-induced climate change. And likewise, Australia may have entered a long, wetter rain cycle just as the first European settlers arrived around the 1700s. How can we separate human-induced changes to rainfall from those deep historic patterns? Generally, we, we look at the time scales of the, the variability. So we in the past, we've always seen variability on the scale of tens of years, for example. But when we look at the temperature record going back to pre-industrial times, we can see a very clear warming trend, which is on a scale that is greater than what has been observed in terms of natural temperature variability. It's a challenge of separating the signal from the noise and, and in this case we have enough of a signal to so events that you, you refer to we would consider as noise in the grand scheme of things and so in the data generally we, we see sufficient signal to to be able to say that the, those kind of events are just natural variability and that, but that they are ultimately dwarfed by the, the longer term warming trend which in, in, in this case is leading to a longer term trend of intensifying rainfall. A study published in June 2021 on geophysical research letters found on our current emissions path, extreme storms over Europe might be up to 14 times more common by the year 2100 than they were in the year 2000. And that sounds pretty serious, not only in terms of human lives lost, but it's really costly to keep rebuilding when floods become common. 
Do you think planners and the rest of us are underestimating the growing threat of extreme precipitation and floods? Absolutely, and it's, I, I suppose it's impossible to, to try to imagine the, the scale of, of damage that, that can be done around the world and the rebuilding that will be necessary to compensate. So moving forward, some serious efforts should be taken, I suppose, to make the infrastructure more resilient to these kind of events so that there isn't just this huge rebuilding effort each time. But it, that's certainly easier said than done. So I suppose it's, it's not really our area to um, comment on, on what the response in terms of uh, infrastructure and planning should be. But uh, yes, in general, we can expect an increasing challenge to, to rebuild and, and prepare ourselves for the kind of flooding that, that in all areas around the world should become more frequent in the future. In another area of your research, I have to say some scientific findings are unsatisfying for the rest of us because the conclusions often include a a wide range of uncertainty. In in a made-up example, I could just make it up. We could say we might get 2 to 12 more inches of rain by the 2040s, for example, but that's anything from a little more water to outright repeated floods included in that range. So, Jesse, you specialize in something called emergent constraints. What is that, and how can that help us? So this is where we look at a range of projections from different climate models. So so we have many climate models available, which different modeling centers around the world produce. And then in general, the scientific community tries to put all of these models together because we know that there's a wide range in projections from different models. And so we try to put all of the models together so that collectively they can perhaps make some insightful projections. And so because of the large spread in projections from different models, this leads us to the notion of what we call emergent constraints, which is where we identify a relationship between the model spread in our projected metric, for example, how much precipitation will intensify in the future, and we relate this to the model spread in a metric which is measurable by observations. So those same models that make projections are also used to model the current climate, which is, of course, observable because we have all sorts of weather stations measuring precipitation and everything else. And so we relate the model spread in the future projection to the model spread in the present climate metric. And then based on that comparison, that allows us to infer perhaps which of the climate models are the most realistic in their projection of the future metric that is ultimately of interest. And so this allows us, if, if we then have a, a large spread of model projections for our metric of interest, that ultimately allows us to reduce that spread because we can ultimately throw out the models which, based on this method, can be concluded to be unreliable. Jesse Norris, you also just co-authored a paper in June 2021 called A Distinct Atmospheric Mode for California Precipitation. Radio Equishock is broadcast by over a dozen radio stations in California. What can listeners there, in a nutshell, hope to look for in this new science? So this study was about uh, identifying the variability over the Pacific Ocean that is relevant for California precipitation. Ultimately, the the goal of of the study that you refer to was to try and establish how well the climate models 
that we use to make projections of, of global climate, but also of regional climate, for example, Californian climate in, in the future. So the goal is to identify how well those climate models are representing the variability over the Pacific Ocean, which is ultimately relevant for predicting California's climate. And in that case, we, we found actually a, a reasonable agreement between the models and the observations, which is encouraging in terms of using those models to make predictions of, in this case, California climate in the 21st century. As we wrap up here, Jesse, are there any other thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, yeah, I would just uh, reiterate that this, the, this, our study, as, as well as many others, showing that what, what has already been observed historically is, shows very clear evidence that the warming climate has been leading to, to intensified precipitation events. And so what this study is, is, is essentially doing is uh, validating the models that we are using to make projections for the 21st century. And so given this validation of the models, this makes it important to, to listen to what those models are projecting for the 21st century, which is that precipitation events are going to be intensifying far beyond what we've already witnessed in recent decades. And so this is something that, that should be taken in, into account and prepared for from a societal level, because unfortunately we do expect these kind of events to intensify beyond what has been observed thus far. As Bob Dylan said, a hard rain is going to fall. We have been speaking with Dr. Jesse Norris, postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles. Find links to his latest work and news articles about this summer's surprise floods in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Jesse, thank you for sharing your time with us. Nice talking to you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Don't forget, new Radio EcoShock shows start in September. I am at my watch post, doing deep research and gathering jaw-dropping new insights into our climate crisis. Please take some time this summer to tune in and learn what is not yet taught in schools or covered by the media. We try for the basic proven facts about climate change on Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.